This is going to be the final in the series of uh, six messages on heaven. It's been an adventure. I mean, I've loved uh, being a part of it. I've loved studying. I've loved uh, communicating uh, what the Bible teaches about heaven. And if you've been with us for the last uh, five weeks and now the sixth week, you know that the Bible is full of information about our final condition in the kingdom of heaven. And it's fascinating, it's encouraging, it's exciting, it's exhilarating, and it's uh, hopefully life-transforming. And of course, we know that the Bible is given to us not simply to fill our head with knowledge about God, but to actually act on that knowledge. And so I'm praying that, uh, that like the wise man who built his house on the rock, that we will be those who will take the Word of God and put it into practice and allow it to transform our lives. Over the last several weeks, we've talked about the misconceptions about heaven, We've talked about our eternal home and talking about the three phases of heaven, and I'm not going to go over that now. If you're interested, we have a, a, a CD series you can purchase. Uh, we've also talked about the new environment, the surroundings, our, our, um, uh, the celestial city coming down from heaven and planting itself in the new Jerusalem. We've talked about our new life with our new surroundings and our glorified bodies and what we'll be capable of. We've talked about our relationships and the restoration to our pre-fall condition. And it's, a, it's an exciting future that we have. It's a worthwhile future. It's one that God has planned and has prepared for us. And it's one that we're going to wrap up today on the issue and the topic of our reward and our work in heaven. I want to begin by reading a text from Matthew, chapter 25. And in this series of teachings that Jesus has done here in this uh, particular section of Scripture, he's teaching his disciples what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he's giving some detailed information about the kingdom of heaven. And he tells these stories in the form of parables to illustrate what this kingdom will be like. And I'd like to pick up the, the parable of the talents in chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on a journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gathered five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more 
and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, we thank you for your word and your instruction. And God, uh, we want to know how to receive your reward, Lord. We want to know how to receive your commendation of well done, good and faithful servant. God, we want to be a part of your work. And so we're asking in Jesus' name that you would work and that you would minister and that you would touch our lives and motivate our hearts and, and stir us up to a new passion in our walk with you that we might please you in all that we do. And so, Father, we yield ourselves to you. God, I'm, I'm a weak messenger, but I pray that the preparation that I've made and the, uh, the heart that I have to share this message, God, would come forth and, Lord, that your word would be established and that you would prompt us, God, to a deeper passion, a deeper love, a deeper commitment, and a deeper joy in walking with you than we've ever had before. And we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. In the final chapter of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, in verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. One of the great privileges that we have to look forward to as Christians is the reward that's awaiting us. The reward from God himself, from Jesus Christ, that has been, has been stored up and prepared for us and that awaits our return to the kingdom of God, awaits our rapture as saints, if you know the Lord, and our gathering in the kingdom of God to receive these great rewards that God has for us. But not all of us have, are real familiar with the, what those rewards actually consist of. And so this morning, I want to talk about the rewards, and I also want to talk about the work that God has for us to do in this new celestial city, the kingdom of heaven on earth. But I want to begin with the future reward, and if you're following in your notes, um, the first point that I'd like to make is that we will be judged in heaven. One of the things that Paul repeatedly brings up in the text of the New Testament is the fact that we are going to be facing a judgment before God. He calls it a judgment seat. The judgment seat was very common in Rome. It was the place where the magistrate would stand or sit on an elevated platform, usually with a chair and a table, and he would render judgments in all kinds of different things, whether it was legal cases or business situations or even family crises. It could relate to land uh, deals or any number of things. Anywhere there needed to be a judgment rendered would be the judgment seat. Now, the Bible speaks of two judgment seats in Scripture. The first judgment seat that I'll mention is the great white throne judgment, and that's actually mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 12 and then 15. And when John the Apostle uh, was caught up in this vision of heaven and the end times, he said that he saw a great white throne and him, him, him who was seated on it. And he said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And John went on to say, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this first judgment seat is a judgment seat that if you're a believer, you will never have to face. It's called the great white throne judgment. It is reserved for men and women who rejected the offer of life in Christ. They rejected the offer of eternal life. They rejected the promises of God. They rejected the will of God. They rejected the word of God. And as a result, because of their persistent rejection of God's plan for their life, God ratifies that decision by rendering a judgment against them that they will spend eternity 
in the lake of fire. Now, that's not a place that God wants anyone to ever have to go. Men and women will only be there because of their refusal to receive God's plan of salvation. Now, the second judgment seat that God speaks of is called the Bema Seat Judgment. And that's found in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.10 and also in Romans 14.10. And in both cases, Paul is speaking about the fact that as believers, we will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And in the Greek or in the English, both of these, uh, these phrases are both rendered the same, relatively the same as a judgment seat. And yet in the Greek, they're different. The ones that Paul is speaking of as it relates to the Christian is this Bema Seat judgment. And this is not a judgment against someone or a judgment in the sense of rejecting a person from the kingdom of God, but this is a judgment that only those who are already received in the kingdom because their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life are going to be judged for their fruit in this life. So the unbeliever will face the great white throne and the result will be that they will be cast away from God's presence for eternity. And then the Christian will face the Bema Seat judgment and it's a, it's a, it's a judgment of award and reward. It's going to be a glorious celebration. And it's something for the Christian to look forward to with great eagerness because at that judgment seat, God is going to pronounce and give award to those who have been faithful in their service to God while on this planet. Now, the other thing that the Bible tells us that we'll receive as a reward is his commendation. God will commend the believer. Many of the parables, the parable of the, of the minas, the parable of the talents, uh, Paul's teaching in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that at that time, each one will receive his reward according to what he or she has done. But in each case, in all of these parables, we find this recurring statement of God Almighty, Jesus Christ speaking to the saints, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. One of the things that I love about the Lord is that he is not afraid or intimidated to encourage people. For some reason, I don't know why, but so many people in, in the world have a difficult time giving an encouraging word. Maybe we're afraid that it'll go to their head. Uh, maybe we're too insecure ourselves to notice someone else's accomplishments and to praise them for it. Whatever reason it might be, pride, whatever. But the reality is, is that there's not nearly enough praise going around on planet Earth. And one of the things that the Bible teaches us to do on a regular basis in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and Hebrews 4, is that we are to be a people who on a daily basis encourage one another in our walk because we are constantly facing the struggles of life. And an encouraging word goes a long way on a hard day. And what I want to share with you is that... Uh, Part of an application on the side here is that we should be people who are regularly encouraging our spouse, regularly encouraging our children, regularly encouraging the saints around us. We need to be praying for people and offering hope and encouragement and kind of just letting them know you can make it. You can keep going. You're going to be okay. God is with you. God's in your corner and so am I. And so I want to encourage you that one of the, one of the beautiful fragrant aromas of a truly born-again man or woman is a heart of encouragement. They're not afraid to, 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 to give it frequently and often, and it makes such a difference. But here we find Jesus Christ. Of course, he's the ultimate guy that's never intimidated by anybody, and he has no pride, and he, and he loves his people. So what does it say he does? When they come home 
to the kingdom of God, one thing you're not going to hear God say is he's not going to say, well, you did pretty good, but boy, you know, I was, there's, you could have done so much better. Yeah, you got a B plus, but you should have gotten an A minus. You know, let's pull that grade up. Are, are, you, are you following me? A lot of our fathers have done that in the past, and maybe you're a dad like that, and I want to encourage you, you need to change. We need to people, be people that encourage without saying, you know, I, I, it was good, but... God will not do that to you in his kingdom. He will praise you for what you have done. He will encourage you. And one of the greatest, I think, desires of any godly man or woman is to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And Jesus Christ is a God who will commend you verbally. And I believe it's going to be, I don't know how, but my, my thinking is that it's going to be individualized. I don't think he's going to, it's just this one big thank you to this big massive group of people in the kingdom. But I think because we have all eternity, he's got plenty of time and I think he's going to publicly, one by one by one by one, over the, over the eons, over the millennia, over the, the, the generations to come of timelessness in God's presence, each one of us are going to receive commendation from God Almighty. I think another reward that we'll have in the kingdom of heaven is that we're going to be rewarded with crowns. It's interesting that the Bible in the New Testament mentions five different types of crowns, and I want to go over them briefly. There is a crown called the incorruptible crown or the eternal crown mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9.25. This is the crown for the victorious believer, the believer who has competed in the games, gone into strict training, and done it not to get a crown that won't last, but to get a crown that will be eternal. So it's a man or woman that has competed according to the rules. Their life is guided by Scripture. Their heart is motivated by the desire to please the Lord, and they want to win the race that God has called them to. And so this crown of incorruptibility or eternal crown goes to the athlete, the Christian athlete, so to speak, who is self-disciplined and self-controlled and is willing to practice a degree of self-denial and be willing to subject him or herself to the rigors of training with the goal of winning a race. The incorruptible crown, the eternal crown. And it will be given to those that have run well. And that's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, 1, he says, as you're running your race, cast off everything, any hindrance, and the sin that so easily entangles us. And he says, run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And so God is calling us as believers to be those that experience and win that crown of incorruptibility. The second crown I'll mention is the crown of joy. This is the soul winner's crown. Paul mentions it in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.19 when he's talking about his hope and his joy and his crown and he's saying to the Thessalonians, he's saying, what is that crown for me? It's you. You are my crown of joy. The believers that he's won to Christ and that he's discipled. And so this is the soul winner's crown. This is a crown given to men and women that have taken seriously the Great Commission, that they haven't just heard what God said, but they've acted on it. That's why in our fellowship, the three priorities that we have as a church is loving God, loving others, and making disciples. And all that that includes from the very beginning of witnessing all the way to winning them to Christ, all the way to discipling them, and then on to equipping them and raising them up for ministry. And so this soul winner's crown, this crown of joy is given to people that love the gospel and are willing to share it. And so whatever 
bit of sharing the Lord with people and whatever small part you've had in praying or encouraging or giving a track out or inviting a friend to church, God says that he will reward that with the crown of joy. The third crown is the crown of righteousness. This crown is the reward of those who stay the course. Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy chapters 4 and uh, verses 7 through 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. One of the real important dimensions of being a follower of Jesus Christ is staying on course. There are a lot of people that start out well, but there aren't that many that finish well. And what God is calling us to do is to be those that finish our race well, that we start off well and we finish well, that we begin the race in the, in the, in the, in the way that God wants us to through Christ and that we finish that race by faith, not flagging, not giving up, not giving in, not caving in, not giving way. But we are men and women who have learned how to what we've learned about, hupomone, that ability to stand under the weight and not bail, not run, not cut and run, but we stay where God puts us in whatever situation we find ourselves in, we stay there and we wait for God's deliverance and God's power. And the Bible says when a man or woman lives that way, they will receive the crown of righteousness on that great and glorious day because the righteous judge will award it to those who have lived under his rule and reign and by doing so have earned that crown. The fourth crown is the crown of life. This crown is reserved for those who gave their lives as martyrs for the kingdom of God. We're told about it in Revelation 2.10 when he says, don't be afraid about what you're going to suffer. I tell you the truth, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Most of us here won't receive that crown. But there are many, many thousands tens of thousands of men and women across the planet who will receive that crown, who have suffered the ultimate fate of martyrdom for the sake of Christ. Don't believe what you hear about uh, Christianity receding and on the wane. It's not true. They've done research and studies, and Christianity is advancing more aggressively than it's ever advanced in the, in the history of humankind. More people are coming to Christ every year than ever have come to Christ. More people are evangelizing in all parts of the world than have ever evangelized in other parts of the world before. The gospel is going out with greater significance, greater impact, greater force, and greater success than in all of human history. And it's coming at the cost of the lives of men and women who are delivering that message in arenas and areas where the gospel is not well received and as a result, they are suffering martyrdom. And those men and women who have given it all and laid it all down are going to receive this crown of life on that day. And the final crown that the Bible speaks of is the crown of glory. This crown is reserved for those who under-shepherd God's people, teaching, preaching, discipling, training and equipping and maturing and nurturing the church. That crown is described for us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, when, when Peter is talking to the under-shepherds of the church, the elders, those that God had appointed to give leadership to the church. And he tells them a series of things that they need to do, that they need to, in fact, I'll just read it to you because it's important. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. 
not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And this is the key phrase. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We've got great leaders in this fellowship. I, I don't know how God has been so gracious to us. I don't know why he's given us such a fellowship of peace and joy and fruitfulness. I don't know why he's done it. It's his favor. It's his grace. And all of us are indebted to him for what he's doing. But one of the gifts that God has given this church is a terrific leadership team. Uh, elders and deacons and then all the people, all of you that serve in so many capacities in the church, we are so blessed. And the Bible says that for those that serve diligently in this manner, not just showing up to church, but actually taking leadership, actually stepping up and, and using their gifts for the glory of God, those people will receive the crown of glory reserved for those who have been diligent and faithful in serving and laying their lives down for the body of Christ, for the men and women in the kingdom of God. Now, one of the things that people have questions on when it relates to these types of rewards is, uh, gee, isn't that kind of unfair? I mean, I thought when we get to heaven, it's all even Stephen, you know, kind of a Christian utopia socialist experience, you know? When we all get to heaven and it's like, no matter what you did here, everybody gets the same uh, reward. It is not true. Heaven is not a socialist regime, and Jesus Christ and God the Father never taught socialism. And all through the Bible, we're told that God rewards people according to their labor, and the Bible tells us that the quantity and quality of your reward is completely up to you. That's not socialism. We've to we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we, we have to make a choice to build on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. That's the number one priority if you want to have a good reward. Number two, you have to use quality materials according to that same passage. If you use wood, hand, stubble, and it's the match is set to it, poof, it's gone. You'll get in the kingdom of heaven if you're a believer, but all your reward will be burned away. So the Bible says use precious metal and precious stone, gold and silver and gems. What is that? It's the word of God. It's sticking with the fundamental issues of the Christian life. It's living a life of integrity. It's living a life of passion for God. It's living a life in absolute submission to the King of Kings, and it's building with the materials that Jesus Christ himself built with, not with some newfangled approach and some new way to do it, but sticking with Jesus Christ's approach. And what did Jesus do? He preached the gospel and he made disciples. And if you use those materials, I can guarantee you that what you do for Christ will not be burned, but it will be refined and reserved for you as a part of your reward. You've got to compete according to the rules. You've got to know what the scripture says. If the Bible says don't commit immorality, then your life has to reflect a life that is not immoral. If the Bible says that you must not steal, then you must make a decision to bring your life and your conduct into conformity with what the word of God says. If the Bible says that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, then you must stop taking the names of God in vain because we must compete according to the rules if we want to win the prize. Now, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about reward. You don't earn salvation. It's a gift from God, not the result of works so that no one can boast. It's by faith. But the reward is the result of our labor that's a response to this great mercy of God. You must compete according to the rules. And the Bible also encourages us in 1 Corinthians 9.24 to run to win. And I want to encourage you as a church, 
If you're going to bother running this race, win it. Don't dawdle. Don't stroll. Don't be dragging big backpacks with you. Don't, don't be hindered by other people that are holding you back. Run the race. If you're going to run, then get on with the race. I want to get on with the race. I believe God has called us to win the race. But you don't win the race by simply kind of thinking about it. You win it by strategizing and thinking and praying and, and, and sacrificing and, and giving yourself to a goal and an objective. And what I want to tell you is hopefully by the end of this message, you'll realize that the, the, the reward is well worth the effort. But run to win the race that God has marked out for you. We also have to be self-controlled in everything. We can expect our work to be tested by fire, so don't build with crummy materials. Use the materials that are described for us in the Bible. The one thing I will tell you is that when we get to heaven, no one is going to feel deprived. We're not going to get to heaven and we're going to feel guilty. That's not going to happen. We're not going to get to heaven and we're going to look around and, and, and feel like we're substandard Christians. That's not going to happen. We're not going to get to heaven and find that there are different levels of heaven. That's not going to happen. That's ta not taught in Scripture. But what we will find is that our capacity to appreciate heaven and the reward is going to differ according to our faithfulness and our fruitfulness here on planet Earth. It's been described in a number of ways. Like a Thanksgiving dinner. People eat different amounts based on their capacity to consume food. But when the meal is over, everyone is stuffed. No one goes hungry. The other illustration that I've heard is a graduate at commencement. When people graduate, everyone gets their diploma. Everyone is rejoicing. Everyone is receiving lays. Everyone is having family pictures. Everyone is having a party. But not everyone has the same GPA. And not everyone has received awards along with their graduation. And yet when you talk to graduates who didn't get a, you know, a, a 3.5 or a 4.0 and they got maybe a 3.5 or 2.5, they're just as happy. You see them at the graduation, they're, they're not like, oh, I, got, I, I should have worked harder, I should have tried harder. They're all excited. The last way I'll describe it is kind of like a, a cup. That every person in the kingdom is going to have a cup of reward, a filling from God based on their faithfulness and fruitfulness here on the planet. But the cup size will be different. For some, it's going to be just a teeny tiny communion cup. They just got in by the skin of their teeth. They barely did anything for Christ. You know, they, they moaned a few praises on the way out, and their cup is just going to be a dribble on the bottom of a communion cup glass. But it's going to be a, it's going to be a full glass because it's dribbled in there, and it's overflowing the small cup. But others who have served God and have given their entire life and have done the work of ministry and preached the gospel and, and given their life for the sake of the kingdom, they're going to have like a 55-gallon drum full of the reward of God. Their cup will be overflowing. Everyone's cup will be overflowing. No one's going to be going around, gee, my cup isn't full. Everyone's cup will be full, but the capacity of our cups will differ based on our reward and our ability to enjoy and more fully appreciate what God has done is going to be increased by this faithful service. And yet we'll all be filled with joy in the kingdom of God. The Bible also tells us as a part of this reward, we're going to have a good return on investment. This is laid out for us in Luke 17 on the unprofitable servant, the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 10, and the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. But Jesus speaks to this directly on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't do it. Why? Because it's all going to burn. It's all going to go. You have a 
kingdom that God has already prepared for you and it involves everything and more that you could ever dream of, of land and houses and responsibility and oversight and riches beyond measure, but it's not for now, it's for the kingdom to come. And if you invest everything and all your time and energy in trying to attain those things here, it will be burned and you will suffer loss in the kingdom to come. The parable that Jesus teaches repeatedly is wait, invest wisely, make it count in the kingdom of God. He's not saying don't have a house or a car or a vacation or anything, but he's saying let your heart be focused on the kingdom to come because our citizenship is in that kingdom while we're temporary residents and alien strangers here on this planet. Interestingly, these all, things have to do, all these things have to do with our reward, but there's also an inheritance that the Bible speaks of as a reward that will come to the saints. The Bible tells us in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are going to receive an inheritance from Christ that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and it's kept in heaven for us. It's already there, this inheritance. It's awaiting us. This inheritance is not ours. We didn't earn this. This inheritance is passed down to Jesus Christ from God the Father. And now Jesus Christ is going to share it. And the Bible says that you will be co-heirs with Christ. What is that inheritance? Well, when kings of this earth pass down an inheritance to their children, that inheritance often consists of land and property and authority. And in the same way, our king is going to pass down to us, his subjects, his sons and daughters, the inheritance that consists of land and a kingdom and authority on the new heaven and the new earth. This has nothing to do with us and everything to do with the inheritance of Christ. And that's coming for you. It's almost here. Jesus said, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. The final reward will be Jesus Christ himself and God himself. The greatest joy will simply be fellowship with God. He is the ultimate gift to the church. I like what St. Augustine said about this. He said, God himself, who is the author of virtue, shall be our reward. There is nothing greater or better than God himself who has promised us to himself. And so we're going to be rewarded with the presence of God. We're going to be also elevated in heaven. The Bible tells us that we're going to be made to, to be kings and priests in the Most High God's new heaven and new earth. Now, this role of kings and priests may not be very meaningful to us, but in theocratic Israel, the king was the one that was the one that oversaw, that ruled and reigned over the kingdom, that set the laws, that set the pace, that made decisions about governing the people. But the priest was the one that interceded for the people on behalf of God and made sacrifice and counseled the king so that the king would lead in a godly way. So these two offices in the Old Testament now will be combined and the people of God, meaning you, will take up that role as the kingdom and the priests of this new reign and realm of God Almighty. I mean, I'm thinking about this and I've studied this and I've thought about it, you know, for months and weeks and now especially this week and I'm still blown away that he is going to entrust us with these roles. I'm flabbergasted. I wouldn't put me in charge of very many things at all. And yet God is elevating us in this kingdom to come, elevating you to the role of kings and priests of this new creation, this new world order that God is going to reestablish in his new creation. 
And it, it really, it's humbling. It causes my heart to rejoice. It makes me happy. It makes me excited. It makes me realize that we don't need to have that kind of a role here now because God has prepared a greater one for us in the future. And I want to make sure that I'm investing in that one and not squandering it on the investment in this one because I know that it's going to be lost eventually. And yet, whatever we've done for Christ and the kingdom will last for all eternity. So I want to encourage you, you have a great reward coming. And it is worthwhile to invest yourself in running your race well. If you're sinning, if you've got some area of your life that you're compromised in, get rid of it. Unload it. It is holding you back from winning your race. If in some area of your life you have compromised or that you have not obeyed God and you know clearly what the Word of God says, repent of it and give yourself fully to the Lord that you might receive these crowns of joy and glory and righteousness and incorruptibility and all the things that God has for you. Now, I want to talk about this just for a second. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but Holy Spirit's prompting me, so I'm going to. Why do people get crowns? Who wears crowns? Kings, royalty, right? Nobody else wears a crown except maybe, you know, Miss America. But, you know, royalty wear crowns. They wear crowns, why? Because they are kings. They are in charge of something. That's what kings do is that they rule, they rule and reign over a kingdom or a realm. Sometimes I think Christians have thought, oh, these crowns are just kind of like, uh, like accessories, you know, to our nice new robes of righteousness. They're not. I believe that the, though the Bible doesn't speak clearly to us about this, I believe that these crowns will be very much like a veteran from a war, a, a military veteran, except spiritual military veterans. These crowns will speak of our accomplishments. They will speak of the, of the challenges that we face. They will speak of the overwhelming odds that we faced and how God, by his strength and power, enabled us to overcome. Kind of like a silver star or a purple heart or uh, a, a badge of commendation. And, and I believe on this crown will be some sort of a description of our rule and reign on, reign on the planet and that it will be seen so that as we walk around that, that there will be identifying factors of, of our responsibilities on planet Earth. And it's going to be a great honor to wear these. But no one's going to be jealous. Everyone is going to know that God's judgment in these matters was absolutely true and righteous and just. But it will be a great honor to serve the Lord in his kingdom to come. And so I want to encourage you, my friends, please don't waste any time. Don't squander this very tiny, limited window of life that God has given us on things of this world. But give yourself to things that have enduring quality and lasting value. And those things have to do with the eternal things of the kingdom of God. Now let me talk to you briefly about the future work of the believer in the kingdom of heaven. What will we be doing? Well, we know we're going to worship God. We've talked about that fairly extensively, and so I won't spend very much time on that at all, except to say that multitudes of people from every language, tongue, nation, people group uh, will be gathered at the throne of God and will be worshiping. It's going to be explosive. It's going to be mind-blowing. We'll never tire of it. We'll never weary of it. And yet there are so many other things that we'll, we'll be doing besides worshiping. But it's going to be an incredible experience to worship at the throne room of God. But here's something amazing from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Bible says there that the Lord your God will take great delight in you. Remember how we talked about last week that the king is enthralled with your beauty? Couldn't remember what it was last night. But the king is enthralled with you? 
I mean, that just right there is enough for us to get excited that the king of kings, the creator of the universe, is enthralled with you. But he goes on to say in Zephaniah 3.17 that he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And listen to this. He will rejoice over you with singing. I don't believe this is going to be just God singing, you know, a, a song at a big wedding feast party and it's just a big blanket song for the church. I believe he'll sing songs like that. But I believe that God is going to sing songs that are written for individual Christians. I believe that in the kingdom of God, he's going to sing to you a song that he's written to express his love and his devotion and his friendship to you. It will be personalized. I'm, I'm kind of envisioning, you know, when my boys were young and they wanted me to read Goodnight Moon for like the fifth time in that evening and I must have read that book between my wife and I 100, 200, 300, 400 times to our kids. But I believe that even the song that, that Jesus Christ will sing to the church and to the individual believers is going to be one that he'll be happy to sing over and over and over in eternity to come. The other thing that we'll be doing in the kingdom is that we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. We already know that. The scripture has talked about that frequently. We've studied that in our text as we've gone through these studies on heaven. But it is the central theme of the Bible. The question being, who will rule and reign over the earth? That has been the battle point. That has been the point of contention since the creation of the planet, since the fall of mankind. It has been the effort of Satan to be the ruler and, reign, and to be the one to reign over planet earth. He's done a very good job at trying to usurp the authority of Jesus Christ. But the day is going to come when all of the battle will be finished and God himself will hand over that authority to his son. And in turn, amazingly, Jesus Christ is going to hand that authority over to his church. And we, as his church, under his leadership and guidance, will rule and reign over this planet. So, yeah, I don't worry too much about politics. I'm, I follow politics closely. I vote. I'm, I'm very active in all of that realm. I think it's important for Christians to be involved. But the fact is, is that politics will never win this world. Jesus Christ has come to redeem this world. And when he redeems it, everything will finally be put right. Until then, nothing will be completely right ever. And so we need to keep our focus fixed on that kingdom that's coming and wait for that time because the day will come when this kingdom, this realm, this, this planet in its restored, rejuvenated, redeemed condition will be ruled over by the righteous saints of God Almighty, the church of Jesus Christ. And we are that church. It's an amazing privilege that God has awaiting for us in that kingdom to come. We're going to be ruling over every living thing. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1.26, we'll be ruling over the angels in 1 Corinthians 6.3. We're going to be ruling over towns and cities and nations. The Bible speaks of these things explicitly and they mean what they mean. It's not some sort of a, a, you know, a, a parable. But he's saying when he says cities, we're going to be ruling over cities. When he says over locales, we'll be Ruling over locales, when it says ruling over nations, he means nations with people and, and, and social life and with infrastructure and buildings and education and arts and all that that involves. We will be ruling and reigning with Christ. Amazingly, if that weren't enough, 
if there was anything left out in our mind of what that might entail, in Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the talents, Jesus Christ says, I tell you the truth, for those that are faithful with the master's goods and the master's calling on this planet in this life, the master will put him in charge in the future life of all his possessions. So whatever is God's, God says, I will put that in the trust and the care of sanctified, redeemed, glorified men and women who have followed my son Jesus Christ. The Bible also says that we're going to grow in our relationships. We're going to grow in our relationships with each other. We talked about that last week. We're going to grow in our relationships with God. Uh, we're going to enjoy ever-increasing understanding of his nature and his person. I like what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, heaven will be a never-ending, ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with greater and ever-greater joy in him. I think he put it well. It's ever-increasing. You know, sometimes people have a, a misconception when it comes to our knowledge in the future that once we are redeemed and glorified, we're going to know everything there is to know. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, Paul is writing to the church and he says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. In other words, he is going to show us this incomparable. You can't even completely understand it. And he's going to show us more of himself every day. Now, imagine with me. Have you ever had a quiet time or a, a teaching that suddenly it was like you, something locked in and it was like a new truth became understood and, and something was grasped by you that gave you great joy in your walk with God and freedom? It might have been the grace of God. That's a real big one. When we make the transition from thinking it's works and not suddenly for the first time we understand what grace is and we're just blown away. Now, Imagine that every day that you walk with God, you discover something new of that magnitude and greater. And every day is another one and another one and another one for all eternity. And at the end of all eternity, you won't even have come close to exhausting the wisdom and the power and the majesty and the glory of God. That's what awaits us in the kingdom we are going to learn, we are going to grow, we are going to experience. It is going to be absolutely stunning and fascinating and glorious and motivating. It will enliven everything that we do in the kingdom of God, this great joy that will, the Bible says we talked about it, it will overtake us. We will have joy upon joy in our heart already and then we'll be bowled over and run over by more joy because of the work of God and what he has awaiting those that have received his son. The Bible finally tells us that we're going to enjoy life as it was truly meant to be, and we're going to rest. It's hard to imagine that the Bible teaches this in Revelation 14, that from that time on we'll rest from our labors and our deeds will follow us. How you can think about all this worship and this work and this ruling and reigning and 
all this activity and all this knowledge and all the, you know, one of the things that I want to share with you is that you know how you're gifted in certain areas? Some of you are very artistic. Some of you um, have abilities with mechanics and some of you are very, uh, you know, you're, you're very visual and others of you are just, you have such a wide variety of giftings. And what I want to tell you is that those giftings are going to follow you into the kingdom of heaven and God is going to accentuate them to their perfected ability. And you are going to paint like you've never painted before. You're going to play a piano like you've never played before. You're going to sing like you've never sung before. You're going to, you're, whatever your gift is, God is going to multiply that in such a way that though you are working, it's so filled with joy, it's like rest. Have you ever had an experience like that? That when you went on vacation, you wanted to do something really restful, and what did you do? Well, you painted, or you did something that you don't normally get to do, or read, or write literature, or something, or maybe it's surfing, or whatever it is, but your work in the kingdom of God is going to be fabulous and fruitful and productive, but it's going to be done in a place of rest. It's just going to seem effortless in the kingdom of God. And yet you will never have known in this life productivity of the magnitude you will experience in the kingdom to come. That's what God has awaiting. It's just this joy. Imagine your greatest success, your greatest accomplishment in life and the joy that that brought. Now imagine that it was effortless and imagine that you had that joy and 10,000 times that joy and every day for eternity and accelerating and increasing in ever-increasing amounts. That's what heaven is going to be like. I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait, and we're almost there. But I want to close with an encouragement. Because if you don't know Christ, you will face that great white throne judgment. And it's not God's will for you to ever see that great white throne. When Paul spoke about it in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, this new heaven and new earth? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We have a an unfortunate thing that's happened in the, in the Protestant church and it's called the sinner's prayer. It's kind of a double-edged sword because the sinner's prayer gives a person an opportunity to share their heart with God and to yield themselves to the Lord. But the sinner's prayer isn't actually found in the Bible. What the Bible teaches the Christian life is it's a life of death to self, confession of sin, repentance from that sin, and then a yielding to the king of kings, the creator of the universe, and allowing his reign and realm to now encompass our lives so that we don't do what we want, but we live for him. When a man or woman lives that way, they have truly become born again. And I, I really am fearful for some people in the Christian community at large who have gone to a Billy Graham crusade or 10 years ago prayed the sinner's prayer, and yet there's no evidence whatsoever that the reign of Christ has taken place in their life, that there's no rulership of Jesus Christ. They are a law unto themselves and they only in very modest ways allow Jesus Christ to have access to their life and they have the false perception, I believe, based on 1 John, that they know God and yet God says, they don't know me because they have not yielded themselves fully to my lordship. That's what heaven is gonna be. 
All heaven is is that Jesus Christ is in charge and all of us are submitted to him. Heaven on earth now is the kingdom of God, the reign and realm over the life of men and women like yourself who have submitted to that reign prior to the time when it will be a reign over the entire planet. But now we have this privilege of bowing the knee to our God and to Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you that if you want to be in the kingdom of God and be a part of this incredible plan of God, you must understand that to be a follower of Christ means to live for Christ. Not just to call him your savior, but also the Lord, the ruler and the one that reigns over every dimension and every aspect of your life in such a manner that this word becomes the value system that you adopt and the priorities by which you live. And it all happens by the grace of God. We have nothing to do with it, but we can surrender, and I encourage you to surrender. For those of you that are, are believers, I want to encourage you is that this window of time that we live in is so brief, and soon it will be over, and the time for work will be accomplished, and at that point, there will be no more opportunity to gain reward or to serve or to fill the kingdom. Now is the time. Now is the moment that's why Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, because you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now is the time. Now is the time. Now is the season to give yourself to God. Don't wait for some future moment. Don't wait for your retirement. Don't wait for your kids to grow up. Don't wait for your schedule to open up. Don't wait for some more opportune moment. Now is the time. It will never be easy. It will never be convenient. It's only done by those that have made a determination that they want to run the race that God has marked out for them and that they are determined to win that race by the grace of God. And I'm encouraging you, run your race. Run your race. Run to win. Compete according to the rules so that you can receive that victor's crown that awaits you on the other side. Shortly, it will be over. And only what's been done for Christ will last. Make it count for the glory of God, and for your own joy in the kingdom to come. Father, we thank you for this time and for the joy it brings us to study your word. And Lord, we're praying for your blessing on your people. We're praying for your blessing on this church, God, and I'm asking you, lift our eyes, God. Help us to see, God, what you have for us. Help us to break away and, and cut the ties to the things of this planet that have enthralled us and captured our heart and kept us from serving you wholeheartedly. God, the sin that so easily entangles, help us to get rid of it that we might run our race, running with endurance, running to win, that we might receive every crown, every jewel, every reward that you have planned for us. God, that we might rejoice in it, that we might be filled with that ever overflowing joy that will actually catch up with us and run over us because it's so abundant in your kingdom. Lord, sing your songs over your church, God, even today, and bless your church, and give us hearts to follow you. We're praying in Jesus' name that you would work, and help us, God, in these final days, especially this week, Lord, to share the gospel with friends and to bring friends to encourage them to walk with you, to know you, to preach the gospel, that we might receive that crown of joy, the soul winner's crown, God, that we might be a part of filling your kingdom with worshipers. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.